0: FK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we face two kinds of insecurity in our lives today, Astrid Taylor argues. Existential insecurity, the unavoidable issues of life and death, and manufactured insecurity, intended to make workers more submissive to authority. Communal action can do a lot to reduce the second kind. Esther's new book is The Age of Insecurity. We'll talk about it later in the hour. Also, Melania and Ivanka Trump have been mostly absent from the former president's side as he rages against the 91 felony charges brought against him in four different trials. Amy Willens will comment on the news, the rumors, and the photos. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect, Harold, welcome
1: back. Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, the auto workers' strike against the big three continues. What's the number one thing the UAW could win in the current strike against General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis?
1: Well, I mean, that depends on what your criteria are for number one. I, I think if you talk to the workers immediately, They badly need a a raise and a restoration of some of the things UAW members used to get from the big three, like uh, uh, better benefits, annual cost of living adjustment, things like that. If they had gotten annual cost of living adjustments, they wouldn't be asking for quite as big a raise as they are asking for. So that's, you know, the immediate needs, which are very real of uh, the UAW workers. In the long run, they really need to have a union representation at the uh, electric vehicle plants and at the uh, new battery plants that the big three and the other auto companies are now putting up, uh, particularly encouraged by the Biden domestic production, clean clean energy production programs. So, you know, that is really, I think, Uh, an issue of the long-term preservation of the UAW and of the union movement uh, to get something like that in the contract. So there's, you know, there's the short-term and the long-term goal.
0: And what do you think management's best offer will be on both of these fronts?
1: Well, on wages, I think, you know, they're going to have to go up. And I think they'll probably Uh, end up with something on the order of 30%. The auto workers have come down from 40 to 36. The companies have gone up from, you know, something in the teens to 20 or a little over 20. The uh, other key concern for the UAW and for members right now is the elimination or the great reduction of the two-tier system, which was put in place during the auto bailouts uh, following the financial collapse of 2008. You know, and I, I, I think the companies will will go along with that. I don't see them really making commitments about making uh, the union contract cover uh, workers in electric vehicle plants that are theirs or 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 the battery plants that are theirs. That they've been using the fig leaf that, well, these are joint ventures with, uh, with you know, battery companies or things like that. They could agree to it and the battery companies would follow along. I mean, they've also been opening, you know, saying that some of these new factories are going to go in the non-union South, in Tennessee, in Kentucky, and, you know, places like that. There, I'm afraid the union's going to have to depend on uh, some of the recent rulings of the National Labor Relations Board which will make uh, organizing uh, not quite so impossible in places like that. Uh, But we'll see.
0: Has it ever happened that an employer in contract negotiations agreed to unionize that employer's non-union facilities?
1: It has, but it's kind of the exception that proves the rule. And the exception, it's an exceptional union, was the hotel union in Las Vegas, which is known for being exceptional in many ways. In this case, quite a number of years ago, uh, I think probably in the 1990s, they had one of the hotels owned by Steve Wynn, who at that point was the major player in, uh, in, in Vegas ho- hotel casinos. What they wanted, because uh, he was building, he had one hotel, but he was building the Bellagio, he's building other hotels. They wanted him uh, to, you know, not oppose their efforts to unionize those hotels as well. Now they did that, they succeeded in getting that because he wanted something from them, and it didn't hurt them at all. Uh, he wanted a change in tax rules so that the uh, very wealthy uh, residents of other countries who came to Vegas and dropped a fortune on uh, on the table somewhere, would not be subject to, you know, immediate federal taxation there, which would probably have driven them away to Macau, where the uh, hotel, the Vegas Hotel Union has no members. And so uh, what the union did was they agreed to, you know, lobby, which created a Democratic, not just the Republican win, Steve Wynn, but a a, a Democratic uh, force lobbying for that too. And the uh, The taxes, the tax code was changed to win satisfaction and the uh, hotel union was able to organize, you know, a a whole series of win hotels that were either just under construction or even on the drawing board. And they got, you know, they got well over 10,000, maybe 15,000 new members, uh, which for a local union is considerable out of of that deal. Well, I want to talk about Tesla. Tesla, of course,
0: non-union. Uh, I learned the medium. The median paid worker at Tesla's factories gets $34,000 a year. The median worker at GM gets $80,000 a year.
1: Let, let me clarify, that's total compensation. Total so comp- that includes the value of, of the health insurance and things like that, that the GM worker gets. The pay is, you know, is considerably lower than that, but even, even considerably lower than that, it's still twice what a worker at Tesla gets.
0: So defenders of the auto companies say this is a reason not to increase wages at GM. They've got to sell cars in competition with Tesla. How can they do it if their labor costs are double?
1: Well, and actually, we're, we're, we're talking on Wednesday afternoon, and, and there were two pieces today in the Wall Street Journal which said, well, you know, how can we match the wages in China? Well, when did ever matching wages in China cease to be a goal for champions of the uh, (laughs) America's national interest? I ask you. (laughs) Similarly, where were these complaints when GM, Ford and Stellantis devoted some billions of dollars to stock buybacks, which was also money the company was was forking out, not to uh, develop uh, new technologies and be as, uh, as uh, robotic as uh, some of the uh, global competitors are. The stack buybacks don't require any confrontation. So therefore, uh, the, much of the mainstream media just doesn't pay any attention to it. If you're complaining about the company not having enough funds to uh, innovate, uh, to be competitive, labor is still a relatively small percentage of a heavy industry manufacturing uh, company like uh, uh, like the auto companies are. Um, of course, they, from uh, our
0: they're... perspective and from the perspective of the UAW, the significantly higher wages that unionized workers at GM make compared to Tesla is a reason to take to Tesla workers and try to get them to uh, mm-hmm. sign up for the UAW. And I understand that the Tesla factory is in Fremont, California, in the East Bay. Wasn't that once a GM plant?
1: It was a joint uh, GM-Toyota. It was an unusual plant. And but it, and it was unionized then uh, by the UAW. And then it simply fell into disuse. And uh, Musk picked it up for a relative song and is paying uh, his workers at relative song rates.
0: The East Bay... Culture is a very pro-union, activist, militant culture. You'd think there are opportunities there to, to
1: organize. You would think, yes. Now, of course, Tesla has been you know, resistant to organization. Musk, you know, the, this is, this would be sheer heresy to Elon Musk. Of course, it was sheer heresy to Henry Ford uh, and Alfred P. Sloan, the the head of General Motors, both in the 1930s. Uh, But you know what? They learned to live with it and their companies were were very successful. I'm going to digress for a second. As you know, Walter Isaacson has a biography out, a new biography of Elon Musk, which I thumbed through in a local bookstore last night without actually buying. But I was looking for something that was missing in his biography that he put out earlier of, of Steve Jobs. And that was, was there any discussion of how, these guy, these two guys, employees viewed their work, and viewed their boss. In the case of Jobs, uh, there were a million people in China working through the subcontracting company of Foxconn making Apple phones. As it became an issue a little bit when a number of them rather uh, graphically committed suicide because it yes. couldn't stand the work. Walter Isaacson never discusses the the role of either Steve Jobs or now Elon Musk as employers. The narratives have stuff about how each of them dealt with their professional colleagues. That's a lot of the story. But, you know, it's not like he's, you know, he wrote a biography of Albert Einstein. Okay, Einstein didn't have employees. <laughs> he had ideas and he proved them. You can't get away with that when you write about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. These guys are major employers, and, as we've just been discussing, they can set uh, living standards uh, which are nothing to write home about for lots and lots of workers. so shame on you, Walter Isaacson.
0: here, here. well, now I want to talk about the politics of the uh, UAW strike. Donald Trump has announced he will go to Detroit next week to give a speech to auto workers and that could turn the strike into a political conflict which you know has enormous implications not just for the 2024 presidential election but for the transition to a green economy. Trump has been arguing that he's against the transition to electric vehicles because it will undermine the auto workers. So they should vote for him because he's defending their jobs while Biden is you know, devoting his efforts to uh, building these new EV plants. Uh, that seems big to me.
1: Well, it is big. Uh, although, you know, keep in mind, Trump has criticized the UAW as such. He, he just is against this transition, and the transition will uh, affect certainly the number of people it takes to build a car. But it, it, it also reflects Republicans uh, trying to figure out what to do with uh, working class voters who uh, may well be aligning with them on social and cultural issues, not on economic issues. And so you begin to see in the Republican think tanks, you know, a kind of little heresy has arisen uh, that uh, Orrin Cass and others are writing about, about, well, we really should be more pro-worker. And some of them say we should be more pro-union. Uh, I still haven't seen any Republican elected officials on the UAW's picket lines, that would still surprise me. And Don't we do better? have
0: Tim Scott. We want to mention what Tim yes, Scott's Tim, position Tim is. Tim
1: Scott, God bless him, said, "Well, Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, and you know that—that's what should happen to to these guys. They're not quite realizing that air traffic controllers actually were federal government <laughs> employees, and UAW workers are not a technicality. A technicality. It was—it was actually. It—I it, it, think it rather shows that." If your life and political career have been contained to South Carolina, as uh, Tim Scott's has, you have a a very uh, blinkered view of the world.
0: But let us return to Trump going to Detroit.
1: Well, uh, you know, I've actually sat in on maybe the grandfather of this this meeting, which is to say I covered, uh, back at the LA Weekly, I covered Pat Buchanan when he was running for president in 92 and 96. And he was, you know, running uh, running against NAFTA, just like American unions were at the time. And uh, he convened a, a meeting that I, I covered with with auto workers in Michigan, which was, you know, a mix of white racist nationalism on the one hand, and a trade policy that didn't screw American workers on the other hand. And I think that sort of sets the template. And you know, it's fascinating. I would I would talk to the workers, and you know, they were down the line where I where I was, where I think we all should have been on on the kind of trade deals that were being cut in those days, and they were racist as all get out. And that's exactly, you know, what Trump is is seeking to mobilize.
0: So if Trump does go ahead and make the his opposition to the transition to electric vehicles, a central part of his campaign against Joe Biden. How big of a problem is that going to be for Joe Biden with, you know, the white working class?
1: Well, you know, uh I, I think it it is something of a problem. And I think therefore Biden's clear support uh for the union uh you know uh offsets a, a chunk of that. Uh I think it also you know, though, hurts Trump among younger Americans, not just left young Americans, but centrist young Americans and some right wing young Americans. So he will gain something from it and he'll lose something from it. Uh, How much is not clear, but I think Biden's counter strategy is to make his support for the union and unions in general so obvious that it it offsets a chunk of this uh, among you know among diehard Republicans this is already part of their uh, you know demonology uh, uh, going to electric cars but he already has those votes he and Trump would be basically uh, contesting over you know a small portion of the working class.
0: I want to take a step back and look at what this strike is about. In addition to asking for a significant pay increase and improved health care, the union is also asking for better retirement benefits, the renewal, as you said, of cost of living pay increases, and then to the different tiers, and last but not least, a 32-hour week for 40 hours of pay. The New York Times on Wednesday ran a big op-ed arguing that all this is too much. They're asking for too much. It's risking our economy. It's risking Biden's reelection. This is from somebody named Stephen Ratner, who was some kind of advisor to Obama's Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner, who uh, put together the original 2009 auto industry uh, bailout. Stephen Ratner says, there's no way the big three can meet these demands. It could drive auto production, not just to the South, but to Mexico. A prolonged strike will hurt Biden in states he has to win, especially Michigan. Auto workers certainly deserve a big pay raise, he concludes, but, quote, we need to be careful about killing the goose that lays the golden egg, close quote. I wonder if you are worried about killing the goose that lays the golden egg.
1: Well, you know, there was also a very similar op-ed today in the Washington Post. So this is this is getting around uh in what one what I think can accurately accurately be called corporate democratic circles. You know, the answer here is to level up the Teslas rather than leveling down uh the standards that uh that the UAW was seeking at GM and Stellantis and uh and Ford. Uh now, look, eventually, eventually, there's already been a large degree of mechanization, of robotization, of manufacturing in general. But the experience of uh, unionized workers usually has not been that good. The, oddly, perhaps, the one union union leader who accepted that with massive loss of employment for his members was the fellow traveler of the Communist Party, Harry Bridges, in agreeing to containerization uh, of the longshore workers. But Bridges got a deal out of it that made the remaining longshore workers then and today the highest paid blue-collar workers in the world. At the end of the rainbow, there will be fewer manufacturing workers, unionized, non-unionized, here or there. But union leadership uh, has to ensure that the uh, benefits of increased productivity are fairly shared with the workers. And historically in this country, every, every time, uh, uh, you know, a machine substitutes for a worker, that hasn't happened, uh, except, except on the docks. Uh, Long term, it's, it, it's an issue right now. Uh, I honestly don't think the UAW expects to win all of its demands, but you know, you make demands, uh, you know, to the max, and then uh, you know, you uh, uh, in the course of working it out with the company, you you work it out, and there are going to be some things you you give away. Uh, but you know, the notion of uh, higher pay, of uh, annual uh, adjustments for cost of living, of annual adjustments for rises in productivity. All of this was in the old UAW contracts. They they should be asking for this and more.
0: And speaking of history, remind us about the 1945-46 UAW strike, which was also criticized for asking for too much.
1: Well, I mean, Walter Ruther really, who then headed the General Motors division of the UAW, he wasn't elected president until later that year, Um, uh, they represented, you know, a large number of workers who went out on strike, 320,000. At that point, GM was America's largest private sector employer. Uh, Ruther wanted, you know, really a change in the whole uh, issue of corporate governance. Uh, uh, He said, what he was saying, look, we're bargaining for consumers as well as workers. You're concerned, about inflation? Well, look, uh, we think GM can raise its uh, wages by this and such amount without having to uh, uh, raise the price of their car. And if GM uh, doesn't think so, they should open their books and we, 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 we can see what they do. And surprisingly, the Truman administration did its own investigation. And said, well, yeah, we think GM can raise wages by 19 and 5 cents an hour, which was real money back in 1946, uh, uh, you know, uh, and uh, and therefore they should. Uh, you know, and behind this, Ruther's idea of corporate governance, now that, you know, the, the, the government said, well, we're going to intervene on this, was to have uh, uh, shareholder representatives, worker representatives, consumer representatives, and public, that is governmental representatives, uh, sitting on the corporate boards. Uh, This went nowhere. GN went apoplectic. Uh, They said no way. Uh, The workers did not get that. But a few years later, they got the landmark contract, which created the COLAs and the productivity increases and supplementing unemployment insurance uh, and providing health insurance and fine benefit pensions. All of that, the creation, really, of, of a mass middle class, because GM didn't want to go through that again.
0: Well, there's one more thing we need to talk about today. Trump and the Jews. Last week was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, celebrated by Trump's daughter, Ivanka, and her husband, Jared. Trump's Rosh Hashanah greeting to Jews which was posted on his social media site. He attacked American Jews for their support for Democrats. Quote, Just a quick reminder for liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel, Trump posted on his Truth Social profile. Let's hope you learn from your mistake and make better choices moving forward, close quote. And he posted an image to those he was supposedly wishing Happy Rosh Hashanah to, quote, wake up sheep, what Nazi or anti-Semitic? Ever did for the Jewish people or Israel what I have done, close quote. You know, moving the American embassy to Jerusalem and stuff like that. Right. So Trump's New Year's message to American Jews was, quote, wake up sheep, exclamation point. I wonder if you have any comment.
1: Well, you know, if uh, there are Jews who are out to destroy Israel, I suspect one of them was talking to Elon Musk and his meeting with Joe Biden this week, a guy named uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, he seems to be doing a pretty good job of destroying Israel. In, in Trump's view of the world, you're either for him or against him. And, you know, that determines the merits of of, of any given group. Uh, Jews have been uh, sort of a self-conscious minority, usually extending minority protections uh, to uh, the, the scope of universal rights and universal protections. Uh, that doesn't fly with, uh, uh, with the Donald Trumps of this world. And that was clear uh, in his uh, message to the uh, uh, presumable sheep.
0: <laughs> Harold Myerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold.
1: Always good to be here, John. <laughs>
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about coming together as things fall apart. For that, we turn to Astra Taylor. She's a writer, filmmaker, and political organizer, born in Winnipeg and raised in Athens, Georgia. We know her best as the co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors with roots in the Occupy Wall Street movement. She writes for the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Nation, and her latest book is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. We reached her today in Brooklyn.
2: Esther Taylor, welcome back. So glad to be here. Always fun to talk with you.
0: Well, previous generations had a lot to make them fearful, the threat of nuclear war, before that, the terrors of World War II. But it seems like insecurity is much deeper now, I think mostly because of the climate crisis, but also because of the next pandemics, rising inequality, the threats of authoritarianism. And you write the way we understand insecurity, the way we respond to it is more crucial than ever. In the New York Times, you have a vivid description of how we cope. Could you read that for us?
2: I'd be glad to. We work hard, shop hard, hustle, get credentials, scrimp and save, invest, diet, self-medicate, meditate, exercise, exfoliate. <laughs> Eloquent.
0: <laughs> you say there are two kinds of insecurity in our lives today. You call them existential insecurity and manufactured insecurity. Please explain the difference.
2: So I I really like what you said. I mean, previous generations have absolutely experienced insecurity. And I argue in the book that it's a core component, actually, of the human condition. To be human is to be vulnerable, to be in need of care. You know, from cradle to grave, we are dependent on others. We can be wounded psychologically or physically, and we can die. It's a bummer, but it's just
1: (laughs) (laughs) so true.
2: so that is real. That's, that's not going to go away. The question is how we respond to the, this existential fact. I contrast existential insecurity with what I call manufactured insecurity. And manufactured insecurity facilitates the accumulation of profits and power by undermining our self-esteem and our well-being. And we see this all over the place. You know, no advertisement will ever say, hey, you're great you're enough, you're perfect as you are, but the world needs changing, right? Always wants to make us feel that we're lacking something. And we certainly see the way that job insecurity is foisted on workers so that they'll be more pliable, more docile, less inclined to strike or ask for more. So I think insecurity is really actually an essential component of the capitalist economic system. And it's something we don't pay enough attention to. We talk about inequality. Actually, insecurity is really central. And now that I wrote this book, I see it everywhere.
0: You quote a line in your book, our capitalist system creates a life of, quote, everlasting uncertainty and agitation, close quote. Who said that?
2: Karl Marx. You know, Karl Marx recognized that capitalism is based on instability, volatility, that it has periodic crises, right? And so what I'm doing is adding to that framework and saying, the crisis is lived day by day, the slow grind of having again, you know, your self-esteem pummeled, not knowing if you'll be able to keep a roof over your head or if you will have to leave the community you were raised in, you know, worrying about the next unexpected uh, climate catastrophe. And so I'm building on that tradition, but I think in a way that merges the, the psychological and the political, the emotional and the economic. And that's really important to me as a thinker and a writer, but also as an organizer.
0: Now, the defenders of capitalism argue that the underlying cause of job insecurity is not the power of owners over workers. It's the inevitable result of increasing productivity, making workers more productive through innovation. That's good for the economy. It's good for consumers.
2: The insecurity that, that workers feel particularly is not you know, a natural phenomenon. Um, it's something that, that employers work really hard to maintain. And we saw this after COVID, right? I mean, we're still living with COVID. So I I'm, I I actually object to my own periodization there. But, you know, it was the sense that workers were gaining too much bargaining power and that there needed to be correction through, you know, raising interest rates and through removing the COVID uh, social safety net. You know, this book, in a very condensed way, because it's a short book, and I'm talking about really one chapter of the book, gives you a a. Takes you very rapidly through the history of capitalism, going back to the enclosure movement, going back to the 1200s. You know, and essentially looking at the way that people have been made insecure on purpose so that they will have nothing to sell but their, their labor. This is what happened, you know, at the very beginning of capitalism in the enclosure movement, and that's been rebranded. You know, it's been called uh, creative destruction or disruption. This idea that, uh, as Mark said, "I'll fix fast relations." You know, all this solid melts into air. And, you know, this is something that we don't have to accept, (laughs) Um, you know, what we need to do. And we being the working class, we being, you know, ordinary people need to uh, recognize that actually security is something that we're entitled to um, and that we can reorganize the economy so that it meets our needs and and so that we don't always feel like the floor is falling out from under us.
0: You have some devastating quotes in your new book. How about this one? increased insecurity makes workers more fearful of unemployment, more desirous of pleasing their employers through improved performance and higher effort, and less apt to quit, close quote. Who said that? Was that Elon
2: Musk? Was that Donald Trump? It was Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, <laughs> appointed by none other than Joe Biden in a memo written, I think, in 1996 or so that inspired Alan Greenspan of all people. I mean, I think that's this is such an important point. She's, she's making this memo. She's saying, wow, job insecurity has productivity-enhancing benefits. That's her phrase. Because workers, are, they, they're more eager to please. That was precisely the point over the last year or so when the COVID safety net was taken away. A degree of insecurity is very useful. To the capitalist economy it's actually essential to it it's foundational to it is what i'm arguing part of the the lie i'm trying to dismantle is that it's somehow our fault (laughs) you know and this is why insecurity i think is such an interesting word because it's very personal but what i'm saying in this this book is it's also political let's talk about
0: what is to be done what we can do and first of all what we need more of you have a great list We not only need cash to pay the rent and the doctor's bills, we need connection, meaning, purpose, self-esteem, and R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Do these have to be in short supply like the new Prius?
2: No, those are things that are, in theory, abundant. And, And, you know, as I was writing this, I was struck by the fact that we live in an economic order that makes those things scarce, you know, why does respect have to be scarce? Why does dignity have to be scarce? Why does rest have to be scarce? <laughs> um, these are things that, that could be abundant if we restructured our society. And what's, you know, one thing manufactured insecurity does specifically in its kind of consumerist variation is it, is it encourages us to amass money and objects, products as kind of surrogates for these other uh, valuable things and these other forms of collective security that we can actually only really get when we work together.
0: The progressive political activists and organizers I know focus their work on the principles of equality, freedom, and democracy, not really security. you You argue that this is a strategic mistake. please explain
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I had some ambivalence about the word security, and I think it's because I came of age in the shadow of the war on terror. And there were two words that were really being corrupted at that moment, democracy and security. And I wrote a book about democracy, actually trying to, to rethink that, you know, mostly for myself. But that's a, that's something that still progressives do. Security kind of falls by the wayside. Um, but security is actually um, foundational to those other values. When we have security, right, we can exercise our democratic voice more easily. We can feel um, secure in our freedom, right? We can take risks we couldn't otherwise take. Um, a baseline of security can help us achieve equality because people aren't falling through the cracks. So I think it's, a, it's actually a really essential concept. So
0: um, are you suggesting that security should be our number one goal as progressives?
2: No, not at all. I think that it is a useful concept. I mean I'm someone who sees these things as always intertwined you know you need equality and freedom to have democracy but democracy also nurtures those characteristics I mean th- these are all in there I I but I do think that our drive for security makes sense <laughs> because again we you're fragile and secure beings you know I'd like to have a roof over my head. I'd like to know that the people I love are going to be taken care of if they fall ill. These are totally understandable human desires. And, and it, this, this kind of healthy desire for security can be met pretty easily. And I think we should not see the term to the right wing.
0: Let's get concrete here. For example, let's talk about the Debt Collective. You're a co-founder of this union of debtors. And it showed you how economic insecurity can inspire people.
2: You know, I so much of my writing these days is sort of inspired by my work as an organizer. And being an organizer, I think, kind of grounds these philosophical threads that I like to chase. You know, but working at the debt collective has really taught me that, you know, economics and insecurity can cut both ways. I mean, certainly we see the right wing tapping into it and talking to people claiming to represent the working class, speaking to people's fears and anxieties, and then misdirecting them and telling them to you know, blame immigrants, blame trans kids, um, and not look at the structure of the economy, not look at the political and economic elites. But through the Organizing with the Debt Collective, I see the where financially vulnerable people can transform their insecurity into solidarity and come up with strategies to address um, their economic dispossession. But what I'm trying to do in this book is widen the frame beyond debtors. Because even people who don't have debt, who might have a, you know, might own a house, might be kind of climbing that uh, ladder of economic mobility, they're at risk in in the world as it's structured, right? A single medical emergency can devastate your financial well-being Um, You know, they're worrying about putting their kids through college. Nobody feels like they can retire in this economy. Of course, there's the climate. So I'm I'm trying to widen the frame and say, you know what? Insecurity affects a lot of us, not just the people who are the, the worst off. And maybe there's something we can maybe we can find some commonality with that, find some common ground and build a bigger tent to fight for structural changes.
0: One little thing that's kind of a telling example, I noticed that the new Teamsters contract for UPS drivers requires that the company turn off the cameras in the brown trucks focused on the drivers. Now, those cameras created a specific kind of insecurity. Your sister would understand that.
2: I had no idea, and I'm incredibly happy that that's one of their demands. So one of the m- moments that my this idea of manufactured insecurity kind of snapped into focus for me was a few years ago, just before the pandemic, my sister was telling me about her job working at this hip Brooklyn cafe, actually just a few blocks from where I am now. And this place has a very retro Parisian aesthetic. And she said that her boss had called, well, she and a coworker were you know manning the cafe And he told her coworker to stop being so chatty with a regular, even though there was nothing else to attend to, no other responsibilities, no other customers. And it turned out that there were at least eight security cameras installed in a very small space and they were not there to make the workers safe from some external threat. They were there so that the workers felt that they could be watched at any moment from any angle by the, by the owner who was at home on his laptop. And they always felt like they were about to be fired, that they were about to do some small thing, like be too nice to a, a regular, <laughs> and then be out of a job and thus not be able to pay their rent, not be able to pay their bills, not be able to survive. And that kind of insecurity, you know, we see this all the time, exactly as you just said, with UPS workers who have a camera on them, Whenever they're driving, radiologists who are being tracked by digital bots, computer programmers who have key tracking software installed on their computers, and this is you know this is just to escalate that sense of job insecurity that Janet Yellen was praising uh, as a productivity enhancing mechanism. And if there's something you know, one core insight of this book is manufactured insecurity reflects a cynical view of human nature. It says that we will only be you know we must be spurred to work out of fear you know, fear of the bottom falling out, uh, this distress. It's incredibly bad for our health. I think it's bad for our political lives. You know, it's bad for our souls. But there are other kinds of human motivation we could tap into, our desires to collaborate, to care for one another, our creativity. And, you know, let's try nurturing those for a while instead of using the stick of insecurity to drive people.
0: Great. One last thing. We have to ask you about student debt. After the Supreme Court ruled that Biden's student loan forgiveness plan was not constitutional, Biden quickly said he tried to deliver the relief another way. Where do we stand on that at this point?
2: The fight is ongoing. I think it's important you know, to also quote the dissent uh, written by the, the liberal judges who said that the ultra conservative majority had violated the Constitution when they struck down President Biden's initial loan plan. So that is an escalation of the of the crisis we're having with the Supreme Court today. You know, it's a testament to organizing that President Biden at least got up there and said he was going to try a plan B. But he once again is moving slowly. He's he's Created a rather bureaucratic process to use the Higher Education Act of 1965 to cancel debt. So the debt collective is once again pressuring him to actually use his power in a in a, a robust, bold way to add pressure to this process the debt collective has just released the student debt release tool which i encourage everyone who has federal student loans to use everyone can use it it takes 10 to 20 minutes to fill out and it will create essentially an application or memo that is sent to the top brass of the department of education we have had success with this kind of strategy before collectivizing individual petitions and adding pressure on the department of education so the fight's not over and the president still has the legal authority to cancel student debt and we think he should do so in a bold way and dare the supreme court to reimpose the debt instead of letting them govern as you know unelected <laughs> officials from the bench because you know again in the words of three supreme court justices they're violating the constitution
0: so we live in a world of everlasting uncertainty and agitation made worse by the climate crisis but recognizing how our insecurity is used against us can be a step toward creating solidarity. Yes, things are falling apart, but in the end, solidarity is one of the most important forms of security we can have, the security of confronting together the challenges we face. That's what Astra Taylor says. Her new book is The Age of Insecurity. Astra, thanks for this book and thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today
2: thank you so much for having me
0: it's the same old story this is living in the usa and i'm john wiener talking about politics thinking about the left when a criminal is indicted for his crimes, it's not easy on the wife and kids. And it's even harder when the father's been charged with 91 felonies and is facing four separate trials with a possible 700 years in prison. But that's the situation facing Ivanka and Jared, Don Jr. and little Eric, along with Tiffany, and of course, Melania. For that story, we turn to Amy Willens. She's our chief Jared correspondent. But she's best known for her work on Haiti. Most recently, the award-winning book, Farewell Fred Voodoo. She was Jerusalem Bureau Chief for The New Yorker. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Also, she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back.
3: Thank you, John. I'm so pleased to be here.
0: Well, the first Trump indictments came down in April. These were around the Stormy Daniels hush money payments, $130,000, where Trump was charged with 34 felonies. That night, he called the family together to sit in the front row for a defiant speech at Mar-a-Lago. We have a picture of that uh, night, who was there and who was not there.
3: Well, first of all, it looks like a funeral. They're all dressed in black. They're forced to sit in the front row and stand for the photograph. It's very formal. So who was there? Well, Donald Jr. and his dark-haired, fulminating wife, Kim Guilfoyle, and Eric and his blonde wife, who you think at first could be Ivanka, and Tiffany and her husband. And one other strange person is in the lineup. There's a figure who does not have the super slender, sim-like look of the other Trump family. And this is Victor Knauss. He's not often summoned for full front and center photos by Trump. He's Milan's father. And apparently he's the only member of his wife's family Trump could scrounge up for this. He looks somewhat at sea among the tall blonde zombies. (laughs) Um, But in his rambling speech that evening, Trump thanked the entire family, including the absent Ivanka, but he did not mention the absent Melania. He said, I have a son here who's done a great job, and I have another son here who's done a great job, and Tiffany, and Ivanka, and Barron will be great someday. He is tall. He is tall, and he's smart. But Ivanka was not there, and Barron might be tall and in the future, great, but he also was not there.
0: (laughs) Ivanka wasn't there and Melania wasn't there. Of course, the Stormy Daniels hush money payments have special significance, especially for Melania. While Trump was having sex with Stormy Daniels at Lake Tahoe, she had recently given birth to their son, Barron. What have we learned about her reaction to the indictment?
3: She apparently wrote many emails to her lawyer in the wake of the revelations about the hush money, et cetera. And the New York DA has attempted to obtain those email messages. Supposedly, they contain threats of divorce, as well as other humiliating or scandalous information that Melania has about her husband's affairs and business dealings. But so far, the New York DA's request to gain access to those messages has been denied. We'll see if a new framing of the request can can pass muster with the judge who denied those so far.
0: And of course, no daughter is happy when it's international news that her father paid hush money for sex with a porn star. What do we know about Ivanka's reaction to the Stormy Daniels news?
3: Yeah, I guess she thought about the indictments and she didn't really want to address them themselves. So she said in a statement that she released, I love my father and I love my country today. I am pained for both
0: being pained for both. She's pained that her country has to endure the news about her rotten father.
3: (laughs) Well, one could interpret it many ways. One could interpret it also. I love my father. He's no good. I also love my country and I'm great.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, that's future Trump. Now, this reminds us of the statement she made back in November, 2022, when Trump had announced he was running for re-election. This was two years ahead of of the election, pretty unusual uh, early start for an announcement, which was widely understood to be a move against prosecutors who were at that point preparing to indict him. He thought it would be harder to prosecute a former president while he was running for re-election. What was uh, the reaction of Ivanka to her father's announcement that he was running again?
3: It started the same way. Maybe she starts every sentence this (laughs) way i love my father but this time around i'm choosing to prioritize my young children and the private life we are creating as a family
0: and who can argue with family values well then in june came trump's second indictment this was 40 felony charges for violating the espionage act by refusing to turn over classified documents after he left office these included papers detailing America's nuclear weapons programs, plans to respond to a foreign attack, and potential weak points in U.S. defenses. What do we know about Melania's reaction to that one? 40 more felonies, bringing the total at that point to 74.
3: She hasn't made any public statement about this, but um, she does seem to continue to be keeping her distance from his messes. After the second indictment was handed down, page six reported that Melania is in a, a wait and see position. She knows what she signed up for. He'll either be in prison or be president or
0: both. <laughs> He'll either be in prison or be president or both. That's a very healthy way to look at it. And then came the third indictments. These were the federal charges brought by Jack Smith about Trump's conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. And then, of course, the fourth set of charges were the RICO charges in Georgia, bringing the total to 91. What did we learn about Melania's reaction after all that?
3: People had the headline, Melania sees it as a problem for her husband, not for her.
0: Well, the subsequent indictments, two, three, and four, did not bring Trump to call the family together again for more defiant speeches and pictures at Mar-a-Lago. He, he did that on his social media platform and in his campaign speeches. We haven't said anything about Don Jr. or little Eric. Have they stayed away from politics the way Ivanka and Jared have? Don
3: Jr. and his longtime girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, They uh, tried to get into the spin room after the Republican debate, but they were denied access. Yet she went on to defend Trump, probably showing the way she would have spun the story. And she just made a very interesting argument about how her boyfriend's father shouldn't be charged with racketeering. She said, it's just absolutely ridiculous. OK, can you imagine, Rico, OK, violations? Even John Gotti never had four indictments at once. There's no mob boss, let alone they do this to President Trump. How is that a defense of Trump? Isn't she saying Trump is even worse than John Gotti?
0: <laughs> it does, does seem to be the case. Yes. Crazy. And we haven't said anything about the other daughter, Tiffany, who is, of course, the daughter of Trump and Marla Maples. Where Has Tiffany been in any of the news about all of this?
3: Well, Tiffany, the oft-rejected daughter, managed to get married uh, recently. And um, it was unfortunate for her that it was the day after the midterm elections when uh, most, if not all, of Donald Trump's preferred candidates lost. And as we know, Donald Trump doesn't like to lose. So it kind of cast a pall over the Tiffany celebrations that otherwise might have been more festive, having a uh, growling father-in-law.
0: So the day after Trump's Big defeat in the midterms was Tiffany's wedding, and then the day after his fourth indictment, the Rico charges in Georgia, was a big event for Ivanka and Jared. Tell us about that.
3: That was the bat mitzvah of their eldest daughter, Arabella.
0: Your um, favorite,
3: my personal favorite, Trump.
0: What do we know about Trump's uh role in, in the bat mitzvah? Did he go to the synagogue? Trump was.
3: Startlingly unpresent, both at the synagogue and at the reception afterward. But he and Melania did throw a birthday party for for Arabella beforehand at mar a
0: So celebrating on his turf, but not on their turf.
3: Yes, keeping it his own, not participating, if I may say so, in the Jewish portion of the festivities.
0: So there's been some more news about Ivanka and Jared since then. She had announced, as you said, that she would not be part of the uh, re-election campaign. At, at the time she made that announcement, Ron DeSantis was doing really well. He, he had just been re-elected Florida governor by a huge margin. The polls showed him in some, in some places, like in Texas, Republicans preferred DeSantis over Trump by more than 10 points, and the Murdoch tabloids said, had a headline that, that read, the Future," referring to DeSantis. But now, some polls show Trump tied with Biden in popular support, which raises a problem for Ivanka and Jared. If he's elected again, shouldn't they be part of this? Will they go back to work in the White House?
3: Won't they want to defend their standing in that machine as opposed to um, choosing the, to prioritize their young children and the private life they are creating as a family? And what we saw was that that distance could change as the polls change. Betty Fair reported that Trump's mid-July private screening of the the notorious child trafficking movie Sound of Freedom, uh, which he gave at his Bed, Bedminster Golf Club, and it was a, a big kind of gala affair. The kind of thing Ivanka doesn't like to miss, opportunity for a new gown, etc. Then um, the guest list included the star, QAnon promoting star, Jim Cavaziel, and other MAGA figures like Steve Bannon and Carrie Lake. But it also included Jared and Ivanka. And this was the big uh, news of the evening, that they had come to an event essentially for her father.
0: And what was the speculation in Vanity Fair about why this would be an important step for Jared as well as Ivanka?
3: Jared wants, is very concerned about guarding his standing in the Middle East after he made uh, peace in the Middle East. According to him, he uh, then left the White House, and he received after they left power. He received a two million dollar investment. Two billion. I always forget Middle East standards. <laughs> million it is 2 billion dollars from mohammed bin salman who is the head of saudi arabia and that kind of investment you like to see continuing to come in so if trump is in the white house it would be it would be shocking to all trump watchers if jared could possibly keep a decent distance from that pattern.
0: Bringing it up to the present, the news last week was that Melania was privately, quote, seething in fury, close quote, over a social media post of Donald's. Tell us about that.
3: He posted, his his organization posted a a photo of Barron behind a debate podium with the caption, in an effort to level the playing field, Barron Trump will debate Joe Biden. Uh, the post got nearly 20,000 likes and it made Melania furious because she and Donald have a long-standing agreement to keep Barron out of the public eye as much as possible. This seemed a clear violation. He's 17 years old. An unnamed insider told the website Radar Online that Melania has been incredibly protective of Barron and has told Donald she won't stand for him to be exploited by anyone, including his father. He made a promise to protect their son, and he broke it. This source goes on to say there's a good chance she won't forgive him, and the next time we see them together maybe in divorce court. In fact, the last time she appeared with him was at the, the birthday party before the bat mitzvah.
0: So there's talk about Melania divorcing Donald Trump. I guess we all need a divorce from Donald Trump, so Melania kind of points the way here. Amy Willens, thank you, Amy. It's great to have you back on the show. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.